It's, uh, it's rare when you get a call early in the morning and it's good news. It, in my experience, it's usually, uh, Dad, I'm okay, but the car's not. <laughs> this morning is not a tragedy, not for me at least. We'll see for you how you feel at the end, but uh, it is a, it's a privilege to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, I feel like Isaiah, and I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips, and and yet, this is in God's providence what he's called us to this morning, me to speak, uh, the congregation to listen. And my goal this morning is not to chastise. So don't think, as I'm bringing this to you, um, you've been naughty and you haven't been doing this and so you need to do better. There may be some of that because there's always room for improvement, for growth, for honing, but, but really a uh, I've seen, along with the other elders, a great deal of uh, compassion and kindness and mercy flowing from your mouths and your hands. And uh, so this is more, I think, an encouragement, um, maybe an opportunity to rethink some things about, about God, that you might love him more, and you might be inspired to follow in his footsteps. With that, please turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to start with verse 1 and work our way through verse 7. Go ahead and stand as we honor God's word this morning. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have placed my spirit on him. He will make just decrees for the nations. He will not cry out or shout. He will not publicize himself in the streets. A crushed reed he will not break. A dim wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully make just decrees. He will not grow dim or be crushed before establishing justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait in anticipation for his decrees. This is what the true God says. The Lord says this, The one who created the sky and stretched it out, the one who fashioned the earth and everything that lives in it, the one who gives breath to the people on it and life to those who live on it, I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for the people and a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in you, justice and mercy meet. And so I ask, Father, that this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night, I knew that Hannah and Hudson and Sophia were going to be at my house, and I walked downstairs, and this is very common. I'd forgotten something important again. There they were, Joshua and Haley and Sean, my grandson, and it was such a joy. And so we ate together, which was a joy, and then we decided to play a game. We played catchphrase because it's easy. And um, 
I caught myself doing something in the midst of this game. I started, I don't know if you noticed, but I started to get a little irritated because it was my team's turn and the other team wouldn't shut up. And so my team couldn't hear what I was trying to say or what my team was trying to say. And you know what that meant? It meant that we were losing and I don't like to lose. And that was unjust. Absolutely catchphrase unjust. I know many of you here can relate to that. We've all experienced games like that or board games. And in many of our families, we've experienced the conflict that arises when there are conflicts over the rules. Last night, was it, do we get a chance? Does the other team get a chance to actually earn an extra point? So that's two points if they get instead of one. And, and so sometimes the problem arises when those rules are just unclearly defined. We just don't really know what the rules are. Where'd that rule book go, by the way? Other times the solution is simply, okay, we'll just change the rules. We'll just agree, just change the rules. And we oftentimes think of God's law this way. As if he was just creating a cosmic board game. The rules of which could have gone pretty much any direction. But this couldn't be further from the truth. And we also live, kind of generally, the way that I felt like living last night. I want justice. Righteousness. And that means be quiet so that I can win. It's understandable. This is understandable. We think from the perspective of creatures because that's what we are. You are a creature. And as creatures, we are not sufficient in ourselves. But we're not just dependent on God's creative act to live. We are upheld by God in the same way in which we were created, by the word of God. God continues to speak and uphold us We are upheld by the word of his power, and in him we live, and in in him we move, and in him, right now, we have our being. And one of the beautiful things is that if we had not fallen, if we were not living in rebellious, autonomous, self-sufficiency, at least seeking to do that, we'd be able to live constantly in this this humble and joyful state of of recognition, we would not forget that we're simply creatures, and we'd be okay with that. I'm okay being a creature. I'm okay being dependent. I, I find comfort in that. That's how we would live. Thankfully, joyfully. We would not struggle with our dependence, but knowing both the sovereignty of God and his fatherly care, we would embrace our dependence, looking to him each moment for our direction, Perfect harmony between us and God, producing perfect harmony between us and the rest of creation, starting with our family members and the people next to us, and then moving out into the, into the creation itself. Perfect harmony. No more conflict. Wouldn't that be beautiful? That's what it was intended to be. But we are fallen. We not only forget that we're creatures, we struggle against that fact. We, we think that we somehow create things out of nothing, like God does. We forget that we only have what we're given. Our hands can only fashion out of the material that God gives to us. With hands given to us, against a pattern shown to us. You know, I often wonder, would we ever have even thought of flight if God hadn't given us birds? For the McFarlands, that's an important question. 
Would we ever, think about that for a second. Would we ever have, would it ever have come into our minds, this idea of flight, were it not God, God's idea first in the birds that we see around us? Because of our fallen creatureliness, we automatically, we reflexively think that God thinks and acts like we do. We miss the fact that this turns everything on its head. God is not contrary to the history of human worship fashioned in our image. God is not fashioned in our image. We are fashioned in his, and we are thus to think God's thoughts after him. We're to be faithful imitators of the faithful God, not the other way around. What does God reveal to us about himself? Well, here's some things we know about God. Though God is inexplicably close to us, God is imminent, he is present, he is here. He is also wholly transcendent. He is wholly other. The God who lives outside the confines of time and space somehow is able to enter into time and space to reveal himself. This reality has perplexed and frustrated philosophers. They can't wrap their minds around how a holy transcendent God, distant, apart, not a part of this universe, can also be wholly imminent. How can God, who is completely other, also be in relationship to creatures? One way to understand the, the history of philosophy is to understand the battle between those two tensions, those two things in tension. The answer of Islam is to say that God is simply not imminent. He's not here. He's not present. He's totally unrelated to us. He is what Greg Bonson called a solitary monad. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything. He lives alone, eternally, forever, and he's happy with it. Does that sound like the God you worship, Christian? The answer of the scriptures is simply to affirm both truths. God is imminent. He's close to you. And he's transcendent. He's wholly other. That's how, God des- that's how the Bible describes, himself, d- describes God. That's how God describes himself in the word. And in the being of God, these two realities, they don't exist in tension. They're not fighting each other. They exist in perfect harmony. There's no struggle in the being of God. Okay. Well, we see this, what we would call attention, in other areas of God's being in other areas of who God is as he reveals himself. So today I want to focus on two attributes of God's character that we often feel exist in tension, but that in God exist in perfect harmony in the, in the being of God himself. Justice and mercy. Justice and mercy are two concepts that in our experience, they seem to displace one another. Where one exists, the other one cannot... We can't just fathom how it can exist without pushing the other out of the way. And the reality is, in some sense, they do. They are two words that identify two realities that are different. Justice and mercy are not synonyms for each other. These two different words reflect two realities. Because of this, we, in our creatureliness and finitude, reflexively work from our experience to the character of God rather than the other way around, we start by thinking, well, in my experience, I cannot simultaneously be merciful and just. Therefore, God can't either. But that's the reason in the wrong direction. 
Our limitations should not lead us to believe that God, who created and sustains us, has the same limitations that we do. In the same way that God can at the same time be both wholly imminent and wholly transcendent, God is at all times perfectly wholly just and merciful. His character, in his character, then, there is no contradiction or tension in these two beautiful and good expressions. This is the first principle I want you all to remember. There is no tension between God's justice and his mercy in the character of God. It is from the character of God that we are given the revelation of what these concepts truly mean. What does it mean to be righteous, to be just? We are bound by time and space. We are not infinite beings. As we see these two realities expressed in our experience, we rightly see that justice, getting what is due you, that's justice, getting what is due you, cannot be expressed toward a particular person at the same time that you're extending mercy to that person. Mercy meaning not getting what's due you. We can't do that. But in the same way that these two attributes of holiness don't supplant displace or fight with one another in the character of God. They don't have to fight with one another in our experience either. Their harmonious existence is answered in a way that takes into consideration their expression within the limits of this finite world. How can we better understand this harmonious relationship, justice and mercy, kissing each other? Justice conceived in the mind of many evangelicals like us identify one true and good aspect of biblical justice. Okay, so we think about justice. We like justice. We think about like the political sphere. We see a lot of injustice. We hear the words like equity being tossed around, and we think they have no idea what equity is. They have no standard of justice that they're judging equity against. There's no equality here. There's no justice. There's no righteousness. We, we think of justice, namely the, the judicial act of dispensing a right verdict of guilt or innocence without bias. That's what we think of when we think of justice. And we're right. We're right to do so. Here, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor. So... Or to, the, or to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Justice is this act of, I'm not going to be partial. Exodus 23, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Oh my goodness, modern Americans need to remember that. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Justice, we need more of that. And it's true, we do. Exodus 12, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns within you. Justice. We need more justice in America. This is true. This all makes sense to us. It easily conforms to our simple concept of justice. But we must think God's thoughts after him. We must allow God to speak for himself and to tell us what he means when he speaks of justice. God's justice is not smaller than what I just described, 
But what I think we'll find by the end is that it's actually bigger than what I just described. Something really interesting as I was investigating this is that the, the word justice is often found in a triad. It's actually found with two other words. You'll find justice, but it's, it's oftentimes not alone. It's, it's got two companion words that is accompany it oftentimes. You see this, if you want to write this down, you can look at it later. Psalm 94, verse 15. Psalm 94, verse 15 says this. Justice, there it is, will again be founded on, here's the next word, righteousness. And all the upright in heart will follow it. You've got three words together, righteousness, justice, and uprightness. You do the word study and you'll find it very consistently throughout the scriptures. Justice, righteousness, uprightness. Psalm 33, verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 28 Another example, Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice, the line, that's the same idea of uprightness, justice, a line, and righteousness, there's the third word, the plumb line, going back to that idea of being upright. So in this passage, this last one, we see Isaiah using the idea of, of a line. Um, the three words that are used here, justice is the Hebrew word from, is, is mishpat, giving someone what they're due. This can mean punishment. That's oftentimes what we think of, but you know what it can also mean, mishpat? Giving somebody what they're due, their rights. If they're due rights, you give them their rights. It can even mean, and this is what we're going to be focusing on the rest of the sermon, it can mean compassion. Justice, mishpat, giving someone what they're due. Righteousness is the word sedek, sedek, what is accurate, correct, the right thing, righteousness, conducting all relationships and family and society with fairness and generosity and equity, righteousness. And uprightness, actually, our word upright, we take three words and we, we, oftentimes the three words will be translated in English upright. And you'll see why. They're very related. The word yeshar means straight or right. The word masarim, a level path, straight rectitude. Ka, a plumb line, a measuring line, a rule. All straight, all level, it's that same line. And so it's oftentimes translated upright. So if we were to take this triad and we were to picture a man, this is what we would picture. A man who is right with God, who represents God accurately, who reflects the character of God, is a man who walks uprightly with justice in one hand and righteousness in the other. Knowing that Knowing what is accurate, 
This man knows what is accurate, what is correct, what is appropriate, the right thing at the right time. So do you have that picture in, in your head? An upright man. He walks uprightly according to God's standard with justice in one hand, giving what's due, and righteousness in the other, knowing what is accurate and correct and appropriate, the right thing at the right time. But God doesn't just give us a picture of what that man looks like. He shows us what, it, what he does. You know, it's far too common in our mindset today to view compassion. Think about this. Think if you've done this before. You view compassion as a voluntary act, whereas justice is required. You ever done that? Compassion, I can choose to show compassion, but when it comes to justice, those are the things I have to do. But it turns out that this upright, righteous, and just man cannot be free of compassion, kindness, and generosity. He's characterized by it. You want to be a righteous man, it's not just justice that's required of you. It is compassion, kindness, and generosity. In God's world, as he defines it, the just man is just because he knows that compassion and kindness is required by the character of God, and he executes it with sincerity, not just out of obligation, because God doesn't execute his compassion, kindness, and generosity out of obligation, but sincerely desiring the the best for his people. You see this in, you see this similarly in Psalm 9. This is Psalm 9, verses 7 through 10, and then I'm going to skip to verse 18. Psalm 9, starting at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne on justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. It's kind of an odd jump. Seems odd. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Notice that the upright, the righteous, the just man who follows in the footsteps of God does the following. He will be like God, a stronghold for the oppressed. He will not forget the needy. Because of him, the poor has hope. He, God has no problem moving from justice, righteousness, and uprightness without any, without any qualifications, with no disclaimers. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, stronghold in times of trouble, for the needy, for the poor, he doesn't draw this drastic distinction. But I'm going to talk about justice now and compassion here. For God, they flow together. The just and righteous man has compassion and a particular concern. The just and righteous man has compassion and a particular concern for those who are weak, needy, and oppressed. Before I begin to really investigate this, I'll admit that I, I struggled to view 
How do I understand God keeps talking this way? Justice, justice, justice. And suddenly with no explanation, mercy, kindness, compassion. So if this is a new idea to you, I encourage you to just seriously consider how this affects your own understanding of God's justice. We see it in Isaiah 58, which is just after what what Dave was reading earlier. Uh, This is uh, Isaiah 58, starting at verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness, that's the deck, and did not forsake judgment. Isaiah 58 is a polemic, it's an attack on the religious hypocrisy of the day. Those who are saying that they are a nation of righteousness and justice, we are a righteous and just nation, we're in fact devouring widows' houses and perverting justice. God then goes on to say that their fasting, their ceremonial and outward observations of righteousness were not acceptable to him because of their detestable hypocrisy. The fact, the, the fast that they were engaging in, the fast, the, the, the lack of eating that they were engaging in, uh, the, this fast of righteousness and justice, God says through Isaiah, is, is it not, in verse 6, the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? There it is again. You want to be a just person? Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Share your bread with the hungry. That's verse 7. Bring the homeless, the poor, into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Righteousness produces that kind of compassion and generousness. Mercy. Verse 10, pour yourself out for the hungry. See that beautiful picture? Pour yourself out. Pour yourself out for the naked, the hungry, the afflicted. Righteous justice, as God describes it, shows compassion to those in bondage, to those oppressed, to those hungry, to those poor, to those afflicted. And I think you can probably all work with me up to this point. Yeah, sure, there are plenty of, there are plenty of deserving poor. There are plenty of people who, they didn't get themselves into that situation, and yeah, I should show justice knowing what is right and apt at the time. A righteous man, of course I'm going to show them compassion. But what about the sinner? This is when God's application of justice becomes more difficult to understand, or maybe the problem isn't understanding, it's swallowing it. So let's consider Psalm 103. Psalm 103, I'm going to start at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. What are all the benefits of which he deserves blessing? Verse 3. He forgives all your iniquity. 
That's the word for sin or guilt or punishment. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. The pit is a place that's often described as slimy, the dungeon, a place of corruption, the grave. He redeems you. He rescues you out of that. Who crowns you with steadfast love, has said, and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice, those are those two words again, for all who are oppressed. Okay, we got oppressed, so far so good, I can handle that. He made, ways his, he made known his ways to Moses. Wait, let's stop there for a second. Think about, think about the story he made, way, he made known his ways to Moses. Moses was leading who? The Israelites. Were they oppressed? Yes. Were they sinless? No. You know the story. Not the deserving poor. He made ways his no... He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. We've just moved from righteousness and justice to a forgiveness of sins, to mercy. Again, without any kind of apology. He's not saying, I'm, I'm talking about righteousness over here, and now I'm going to talk about mercy and compassion. They all, in God's character, flow together. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity, iniquities. Why? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, his covenant love, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Compassion. For he knows our frame and he remembers we are just dust. So what I want to point your attention to is that God does something that I think we often have a hard time reconciling. In the midst of this section, describing our iniquity, describing our sin, describing our guilt and our rebellion, right in the middle, without an apology whatsoever, his declaration is this, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice. He works righteousness and justice. How does he do that? He expresses compassion and mercy and kindness to a people who don't deserve it. Oftentimes, the way we view justice, it's too, too narrow. And so we'd think, well, if God executes his justice towards us, his righteousness, it would be a death sentence, not a declaration of hope. But notice what I just read in Psalm 103. He talks about righteousness and justice, and then we have hope. God views God's view of justice carries within it a compassion and a kindness, especially for the weak. And if we can wrap our hearts and our minds around that truth, then it's not quite as big a leap from our need for mercy, a form of compassion, 
to God's justice, which contains a heart of compassion for the needy. But you'll rightly say, wait, justice and mercy are not the same thing. The two describe different truths, and that's true. Justice is what is due. Mercy is not getting what is due. True. But biblically, even in justice, God's heart inclines toward compassion. God's view of justice carries within it compassion and kindness, especially for the weak. This is one of the reasons that the new covenant is far better. What was unclear is now made manifest. We can make sense of God's justice and mercy in a way that the old covenant saints couldn't. How? Jesus. Jesus. We have Jesus. Justice and mercy incarnate. Didn't rip him in two. It is in the person of Jesus, particularly as his mission involved his death on the cross, that what is reconciled perfectly in God's being, he's always just, he's always merciful, is reconciled in history. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of mercy, and Jesus Christ became the object of God's justice. It is in the person of Jesus and in his crosswork in particular that mercy and justice in history find that perfect harmony. Jesus is the embodiment of both. And as the propitiatory sacrifice for his elect, God can express his compassion to genuinely sinful creatures without sacrificing justice. Jesus, the judge of all creation, who will one day come to judge the living and the dead, could look at sinners and not immediately cast judgment upon them and cast them into hell because in his justice he was willing to take on the justice that we deserved so that he might extend mercy and pardon. So Jesus himself actually quotes that passage that we started our service with in Isaiah. And he quotes our passage and he helps us understand, and understand it. If you want to turn, you can look at Matthew 12, starting at verse 18, and he quotes the Isaiah 42 passage. It's Matthew 12, starting at verse 18. He says this, Behold, he's quoting Isaiah, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. We know this is Jesus now. Who was Isaiah talking about? He was talking about Jesus. And he, Jesus, will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Is that what Jesus came to do? If, we, if, our, if our view of justice is that narrow? Did Jesus come for justice? Narrow? Narrowly defined? I hope, I hope not narrowly defined. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He's not going to take people who are on the verge of being snuffed out already, who are on the verge of breaking. He's not going to take weak people and crush them. But didn't he come to proclaim justice? Yes. Until he brings justice to victory, in fact. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. What does justice have to do with meekness and gentleness? That's what's being described here. He's coming. He's not going to raise his voice. He's not going to bruise the weak. He's not going to use his strength to destroy people. 
His justice will produce hope for the Gentiles. How? Meekness is described in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Gentleness is described where he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Doesn't justice demand the unbending application of the law, devoid of compassion? Apparently not. It was, in fact, the compassion of God for the oppressed, for the weak, for the imprisoned, that motivated God to save sinners, spiritually oppressed, weak, and imprisoned. The Gentiles, an Old Testament picture of those outside relationship with God, could hope in the justice of Israel's God because it included the compassion that motivated God to show the mercy of the cross. As we see in verse 20, justice is brought to victory. Or he will faithfully make just decrees in the person and work of Jesus. Because of the justice of God, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is accepted and God's justice becomes your victory. This quotation of Isaiah regarding the justice in which the Gentiles can hope is right in the middle of a series of accounts of Jesus' mercy. Jesus quotes Isaiah and it's smack dab in the middle of of Matthew walking through a bunch of examples of Christ's mercy to sinners. The Pharisees couldn't handle this. They questioned Christ's compassion because it fell outside their narrow conception of how a righteous, just, and upright man would behave. Jesus allowed his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. Lawbreaker. He healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. Lawbreaker. And doing so violated in their mind what was right and just and upright. But Jesus, as we, just as we started today, but just as we started today, God is the one who defines for us what justice is. And as justice and mercy exist in perfect harmony outside of time and space within the being and person of God, so, so too justice and mercy exist in harmony within the historical and physical reality of the person of Jesus. He embodied the compassion of mercy and took on himself in his body the justice of God. Jesus showed us what it meant to live out justice and mercy. He paid close and gracious attention to the poor to the weak, to the needy, to the despised, to the foreigner, to the Samaritan dog, the bleeding woman, and the ignorant Peter. He extended a merciful attention to sinners, not just the needy, but even sinners, the woman at the well, the betraying and inconsistent Peter, the rich young ruler. You hear this in Mark 10. Looking at him, Jesus felt love. You know which kind of love? Agape. He felt love for the rich young ruler. He showed compassion on the very sinners who nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them. They're clueless. What's the application today? We must be just. There it is. When given power, authority, and position, we must wield it according to the standard of God. That means we do the hard work of doing what is right. We extend fair verdicts when we must. 
not showing favoritism to the poor or to the rich, extending justice for the benefit of all. But we also must view justice as having a special and fervent concern for the weakest among us. Still the widow, the orphan, the poor, the foreigner, but it's also for the unborn, the aged, the struggling, the child, the depressed, the fearful. In dealing with our neighbor, they're all sitting around you, or they're at home sick, or their leaves are on your lawn. You've had that conversation with them before, and you get it again. In dealing with our neighbor, our fellow servants, we must remember that we all stand guilty before the standard of a righteous God. We have been forgiven much, and the ministry of Jesus at his first advent and the ministry he has handed over to us for now is a ministry of mercy and salvation, not of condemnation. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would, through him would be condemned. No, he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Think about this. The world would be condemned without anyone doing anything. Okay? We, there's, nobody needs help condemning the world. We're doing a fine job of that. On our, it's, it's heading that direction, right? That's the natural gravity right now. Condemnation. We don't need to work to see condemnation. Our call until the glorious day of Christ's second coming, when he will judge the world, is encapsulated in our modern hymn that we often sing. Hear, hear, the, hear these words again afresh. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, to rage against, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, a condemned world. No. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. So are we seeking justice as God would seek it? This is a good question to be asking. Do we show compassion for the, for the poor? Only for the deserving poor? There have been, over the past few months, and, and honestly, it is hard being an elder, and I know it's hard being you when you have to make these kinds of decisions. What, what would wisdom dictate here? How can I best serve this sinner standing next to me in need? It, it is hard to answer that question oftentimes. But we have seen a number of times where a person has gotten themselves into a mess, but because of the compassion they experienced, their lives were transformed. Because it was, it was the undeserved kindness of God that they received. And some of you are smiling and you're thinking, he's talking about me and I wasn't even talking about you. I was talking about somebody else. Did Jesus only show care and compassion toward the deserving poor? No. Do the weak and poor see us? Do they see in you a passionate concern for them.
That's what they see when they look to Christ. That's what they should see to us, his ambassadors. That's, that's what they should see when they look to us, his ambassadors. Do those who have sinned against us, do those who have sinned against you, those who are in the greatest need of rescue, do they see the eager offer of forgiveness? Christ's forgiveness in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our tones of voice? Do our brothers and sisters in this church, who should know better, see our undeserved compassion? The answer, honestly, is you guys are doing a good job. Keep it up. Keep it up. Lives are being changed because, of, because you're, you are expressing uprightness and righteousness and justice the way that God does. In Calvin's commentary on this passage of Matthew 12, he says this, we, we also see that it is usual with hypocrites to pursue what is nothing more than a shadow of the righteousness of the law. And as the common saying is to, to stickle more about the form than about the substance. First then, let us learn from this passage to keep our minds pure, free from every wicked disposition. When we are about to form a decision on any question, for, it, for if hatred or pride or anything of that description reign within us, we will not only do injury to men, but will insult God himself and turn light into darkness. There's nothing more hypocritical and worthy of compassionless justice than for a man or a woman, forgiven an impossible debt, to do anything other than to be eager, if at all possible, to show that forgiveness to others. I'm going to repeat that. Because if we get this down, the, you will never be the same again. Your families will never be the same again. This church will never be the same again. Or your communities will never be the same again. The church will actually be viewed the way she's supposed to be viewed. As a marvelous spectacle to the world. There's nothing more hypocritical and worthy of compassionless justice than for a man or a woman. That's us Forgiven an impossible debt, that's us. The hypocrisy is then to turn around and do anything other than have an eager, an eagerness, if at all possible, to show that same compassion to others. Let us not be like the antagonist, the villain Javert. In Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, Javert simply could not wrap his mind around mercy. He viewed it instead as a monster that needed to be exterminated. The narrator gives us insight into the internal thoughts of this man who, when his enemy, Javert's enemy, extended him mercy, he thought this. this we'll, we'll close with this. These are the thoughts of a man pursuing such a narrow view of justice that it produced in him these thoughts. A benevolent malefactor. Merciful, gentle, helpful, clement. A convict? Returning good for evil? Giving back pardon for hatred? Preferring pity to vengeance? preferring to ruin himself 
rather than to ruin his enemy? Saving him who had smitten him? Kneeling on the heights of virtue more nearly akin to an angel than to a man, Javert was constrained to admit to himself that this monster existed. Things could not go on in this manner. Let's pray that God would give us a love for justice like God's, one that inclines toward compassion to the weak as well as to the undeserving, not looking at God's righteousness as monstrous, but as beautiful. Amen? Let's pray. We do thank you for your justice, and we thank you for the way that it was poured out on Jesus. Thank you for making us recipients of that great gift. Help us to see your righteousness and how it produced the beautiful story of our own redemption and the redemption of this world. Help us to be like you. Make us holy even as you're holy. Help in our lives to others to see the incarnation of both justice and mercy as we see it lived out in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.